When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 306, and we are recording on November 9th. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with Amanda Nelson. We're coming to you from Book Riot and my post-Daylight Savings disorientation. <laughs> Death to time changes. I am so conflicted about it because I really appreciate having that light in the morning to help me wake up, but mm-hmm. then... When it's dark at five thirty, my soul is sad. So, like, I, I, I have too, I have too many feelings about mm-hmm. it. Is really what's happening here. Well, you know, as a parent, or, mm. or even if you have like dogs, right? The fallback is torture if your kids are young, and because right. then instead of getting up at five, they're getting up at four. Oh, uh, you know, or whatever. I mean, mine are older. They're they wake up at six thirty or whatever. I die, and they feed themselves breakfast, so it doesn't really affect me anymore. But I remember the the young days of like, oh, cool, I'm gonna be up at three in the morning for the yeah. future. Just kill me. <laughs> I was talking to two of our coworkers about that yesterday because they both have children under the age of three and they were like, this is rough. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, it is. I'm sorry, like, and again, I'm sorry even, parents. If you have like cats that are so insistent about eating oh, at the yeah. same exact time every morning, then fallback is like, just stop. <laughs> and they, you can't reason with them. They speak no. English. <laughs> they are unreasonable. It's true. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our rant about daylight savings. You're mm-hmm. welcome. <laughs> Let's move on now. How does this show work? You might be wondering if you're new here. Welcome. It is, as we said, a show for personalized reading recommendations, which means you can send in your questions for any kind of recommendation. Maybe it's something for you. There's a kind of book you love, you're having trouble finding more, maybe you need something for a family member or a friend, for a gift, for your book club, whatever, you can send those in either via email, getbooked at bookriot.com, or you can drop them in the form that's at the bottom of the show notes on the site for each episode. If you have a time-sensitive request you're hoping to hear back, for example, by, you know, before Christmas, mm-hmm. uh, just as a random example that might be appropriate. <laughs> that has nothing to do with the Nothing to time. do with anything, no. <laughs> um, please put time-sensitive and then when you're hoping to hear back by, either in the subject line of the form or the very first line of the email. We'll do our best. We don't get to all of them, but we do try. And yes, that's my story about that. Okay, we are going to do our holiday episodes soon. Mm. So, Next week, if, right? yeah, yeah, our, yeah. Uh, well, the first of what I imagine might be a couple, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, if you've already gotten yours in, good job. Uh, mm-hmm. You do still have time though. And then before we get into feedback, reminder, we have a new podcast. It is called Adaptation Nation. And the very first episode is myself and Amanda mm-hmm. and Jeff from the Book Riot podcast and our feelings about Dune. Dune. <laughs> We had a lot of them. We had a lot of them. So if you have any interest in hearing those feelings and or just would like a podcast that's all about books being translated to screens, both large and small, you can find Adaptation Nation on your podcatchers. It'll be a rotating cast. Of... Should we tell them what the next episode is? Oh, yeah. Go for it. It's Casino Royale, which is very mm, exciting. Yes. So Vanessa, who is our managing editor, will be joining Jeff to talk about 
Casino Royale, the Bond movie and book. And the show will come out uh, on an every two weeks, twice a month. Yeah, twice a month on Mondays. Cadence. So, yeah. Bond mm-hmm, fans, mm-hmm. ahoy. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> All right, let's see. We have a bunch of feedback before we get to the questions. The first one is from Heather. A recommendation for the listener who wanted to learn more about epidemiology from BIPOC authors. Inflamed by Rupa, Maria, and Raj Patel is an extremely informative look at how public health and immunity are irretrievably linked to intersectionality and the processes of colonization and has fundamentally changed the way I think about a number of situations. I'm going to read that. Yeah, same. That sounds like a great wreck. Uh, let's see. From Wendy for Bray, who's looking for queer slash found family fall vibes books. A bunch, uh, starting with Of Echoes Born by Nathan Burgoyne, collection of short stories with a supernatural vibe. House of Hollow by Crystal Sutherland. It's not super queer, but it is kind of queer and super <laughs> creepy. <laughs> Alone by E.J. Noyes, weird atmospheric queer mind bender about a woman who has to spend four years in complete isolation to win $500,000. Interesting. Would sign up, to be honest. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Nottingham by Anna Burke, a super queer retelling of Robin Hood, her queer beauty and the beast retelling. Thorn is excellent as well. And then last but not least from Georgia for Rebecca, who wanted spooky, not terrifying reads. I recently read Pine by Francine Toon, a moody, woodsy, ghostly story set in the Scottish Highlands. There's an ethereal lady in the woods, a young girl dabbling in magic, and a missing teenager. It's the right amount of spooky. All right, good job, everybody. Uh, Amanda's going to read our first question, and then away we'll go. All right, question one is from Jasmine, who says, My husband is facing some scary and fast-moving health issues. I'm looking for two kinds of recommendations. Number one, a nonfiction book on caregiving and or end-of-life support for a spouse. No religious recommendations, please. And number two, something very escapist and easy to dip in and out of. Reading is my self-care, and I haven't been able to keep my attention focused on anything. I read pretty widely and will appreciate anything that's not sad or saccharine. Sponsor time! Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. 
This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Okay, um, we split this question up. I took part one and Jen took part two. So I will start. First of all, I'm so sorry that you're having to deal with this. That's mm. just, it's a lot, right? Like, it's a lot. So mm-hmm. I'm recommending The Soul of Care by Arthur Kleinman, which is a memoir. The subtitle is The Moral Education of a Husband and a Doctor. And Dr. Kleinman is a Harvard psychiatrist and also a social anthropologist and was married to his wife, Joan, for many, many years. In her early 50s, she was diagnosed with early onset dementia, a specific kind that I hadn't quite heard of before that affected first her, her visual acuity. So she was losing her sight and also her ability or her like cognitive function over time. And he was her primary caregiver for many years. Like she was quite young when she was diagnosed up until the last nine months of her life when she was moved into a long-term care facility. So this is a memoir that starts like kind of David Copperfield-ish. I was born, you know, from Dr. Kleinman and then how he met his wife, what their marriage was like. And then... The interesting part about this memoir, I think, is the difference between caregiving through the eyes of a doctor, which he is, and then caregiving through the eyes of a person who is living with the person and loving the person who is sick and who is dying. So that kind of institutional knowledge that he has, but also the way that the institutions of healthcare in America approach end-of-life caregiving, which is very cold and Mm. often more financial than anything else and doesn't actually really consider the feelings or experience of the person who is dying and or the people who are caring for them up until that point. And then so he just runs all up against all the feelings, even though he's a doctor and should have theoretically, you know, encountered the situation several times throughout the course of his practice. He just doesn't understand it until it applies to him. So he refers to his wife a lot as like his moral teacher. And the subtitle, The Moral Education of a Husband and a Doctor, is about that thing, about caring for his wife for several years, several years as she died and kind of learning to be a person about it, which is harder for a doctor than you would perhaps think. So that's The Soul of Care by Arthur Kleinman. All right. And for a little bit of escapist soothing uh, reading, I picked a novella, A Psalm for the Wild Built by Becky Chambers, who is our (laughs) go-to feel-good safe space author. And this is a really sweet novella. It is about a tea monk which is the thing I would like to be. Like their whole job, (laughs) this person's whole job is to like set up a little tea stall in the market and like provide tea for people who are coming to like, who just need a break. Like maybe they need to like vent a little bit. Maybe they just need to sit quietly with a cup of tea, whatever. So our main character, that is their job. And they live in this like future utopian-ish society that like has a lot of respect for nature and there are sections of the world they just don't go to preserve that wilderness. And also it so happens that at one point before now in the book's timeline, 
artificial intelligence like achieved sentience. And so there are also robots who now roam those untouched wildernesses and nobody really encounters them. They're like left entirely to themselves. Like humanity has like sworn not to interfere with them and to leave them alone. So our monk is like experiencing some life dissatisfaction, like mild, like, why am I not content? Like, my life is okay, but like, I'm exhausted all the time. Like, maybe I need to make a change or take a break. And they go off on this adventure where they meet a robot. I'm not going to give any other details because this is a novella and uh, it is pretty short. But it's a really sweet, atmospheric jump outside of your own self, but also it has some notes that I think might be helpful for you. Like this this monk is also like providing a very small but still real level of care to the people that they're serving tea to. And like that's like a little bit of a thread through this is like, how do you make time for yourself? But then also you're just like roaming around this world that has like funky, sustainable technologies and also sentient robots. And like, what is it like to be in this world? And like, it's very it's a really sweet, fun story. And uh, everybody I know who has read it has just been so charmed by it. So I think it might be a good one for you. So, again, that's A Psalm for the Wild Built by Becky Chambers. All right. Next question is from scrolling, scrolling Shelby. Shelby has need of two quirky categories of fiction that my book club loves. The first is unusual genre fiction classics, uh, for example, pre-1940 or for mysteries pre-Golden Age. Previous successes from this genre include War with the Newts, weird early sci-fi, Hagar's Daughter, Victorian melodrama meets Get Out, and Gilgamesh, so old it predates even the epic poem genre conventions. And then category two is genre fiction and translation, preferably from regions other than Western Europe. Um, There's a bunch of explanations about this. Let's see. Examples that would work if a large portion of us hadn't already read them include The Three-Body Problem, The Hunjin Murders, and A Hero Born. And then, let's see, Shelby lists a bunch of others that they've already read. We split this question up, as you might expect, and Amanda took genre fiction and translation. Amanda, what you got? Okay, so... I picked Out by Natsuo Carino. It's translated by Steven Snyder. And this is a mystery thriller in translation. She does mention in the question for this that she doesn't want anything very dark, but then also talks about an elderly lady is up to no good in the three body problem, which are both quite dark and involve a lot of like violent deaths. So I felt okay about this. Out is a Japanese novel about four women who work the night shift in a boxed lunch factory, like packing lunches that you could buy at convenience stores. And they're all in very abysmal, like, home life situations. Uh, One of them is the victim of a lot of spousal abuse. Oh, trigger warnings for sexual assault, domestic violence. It's also just very murdery, so it's quite violent. And another, like, her husband has abandoned her and and left her to care for his mom, and she's doing that. All of them are very financially strapped. And they kind of are bonded together at work in their shared misery a little bit. And then one of them murders her husband, (laughs) like, strangles him in the night. In mostly out of self-defense, and then recruits the, her three friends from work to help her dispose of the body. They come under suspicion from the police, so there's some of that cat and mouse with the cops. But then also the Japanese mob, the Yakuza, like catches wind of this and starts hiring them to dispose of bodies because they're actually pretty good at it. Um, one of the women emerges as the ringleader. She's very like shrewd. And even though they don't have any experience being, you know, violent criminals, it turns out they've got quite a bit of talent for it. Uh, And so that's kind of the, that's the setup. And that's what you are 
following them throughout, like trying to evade arrest, trying to not be killed by the members of the Japanese underworld as they, you know, navigate that world in ways that they've never, ever, ever had to do before, all while hiding it from their families and trying to figure out what to do with the money. It's just there's a lot going on. It's very much a feminist novel about the state of being a woman in Japan, specifically when the book was written, which was the like early 90s. And so it's it's there's a lot of like rage. It's fascinating, but it's also pretty fun. I mean, it's dark. It's dark in a really funny, uncomfortable kind of way. And I think there's tons of fodder for a book club for this. So that's out by Natsuo Karino. Yeah, super dark. I have done that book in a book club. There is plenty to talk about. <laughs> Uh, so my I, I unusual genre fiction, oldie time genre fiction, I picked for you Blake or the Huts of America by Martin R. Delaney, which I actually first did as part of a virtual book club that was working its way through Nisi Shaw's Black Speculative Fiction reading list, which is a great resource. Side note, I will link to it in the show notes. So, oh, and Blake comes with content warnings for slavery and all of its related violence. This is a really fascinating book. It takes place in the 1850s. It was written not super long after that. Like, it's a very um, of its time book. And it follows an enslaved uh, West Indian person who is dealing with, like, all of the things you would expect. Like, uh, his wife is sold to a different plantation, and he becomes involved in uh, an uprising and in organizing that uprising um, as part of both his escape from enslavement and also quest to get his wife back. And it's like, it spans a huge amount of geography, like it goes all over the United States, goes to Cuba. And it's considered speculative fiction because Delaney sort of imagines prior to the end of slavery, what an uprising could have looked like if these organizational efforts had succeeded. And it's written a lot in Patois. So you are, you know, reading the various dialects of the different people on the page, whether they are, you know, slave owners or those roving gangs of slave catchers or uneducated African-Americans or African-Americans with more education. Like there's all of these different people that that our character is interacting with and discussing various things with. And also our character is code switching quite a bit for obvious reasons. So and you're getting all of that dialect and dialogue on the page. And it's really it is really dense, as you might expect for a book like written, you know, around the turn of the century. It's fascinating. And it is so good to do with a book club because it wasn't technically finished. So you get to the end and you're like, but wait, what happens? Um, And it was really interesting to see everybody's different reactions to that. And then like, what do they think happened? And like, what do you think happened? What do we think the text supports? And also just the experience of reading something with that much dialect and patois on the page is also, I think, a thing that tends to produce interesting book club conversations because some folks have an easier time with it than others. I actually didn't double check to see. I bet there's an audiobook version of this that might be helpful for some who have a hard time reading that because I know that's that's difficult for some people. But it's really it's really I think it fits right into the vibe of your book club as as you've presented it to us here. And I think it would be a really interesting reading experience. So, again, that's Blake or the Huts of America by Martin R. Delaney. 
All right. Question three is from Alicia, who says, my daughter's a fan of classic literature, but after a year in college, she's realizing she doesn't have much experience with modern literature. Her favorite books are Jane Eyre and Mrs. Dalloway. Other favorites are The Haunting of Hill House, Great Gatsby, Beloved, The Bell Jar, The Color Purple, and Madame Bovary. Her favorite authors are Bron- the Brontes, Virginia Woolf, Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, and Shirley Jackson. She also loves Shakespeare, but is not a fan of Jane Austen or Y.A. Or Y.A. Angst, sorry. A couple of modern authors she has read and enjoyed are Otessa Moshfe and Ali Smith. Can you recommend some mo- modern novels I can surprise her with? Okay, I picked Matrix by Lauren Groff, which is Lauren Groff's newest novel that I did an episode of The Hand Cell about, and I cannot remember if that is out yet or, no, or not. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's not out yet, I uh, that's coming. Sorry about that. But I think that Lauren Groff and Ali Smith have a pretty similar writing style. Like they both write in this really poetic kind of cadence. So I think that she'll find a lot lot to like here, especially because out of the lists of her favorite books and authors, you listed a lot of really foundational feminist uh, Mm. works that are super angry and Matrix is super angry. So this is a little bit out of left field. It takes place in the 12th century in the court of Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was the queen of France and England at various points in her life. And But it's not from her point of view. It's from the point of view of Marie de France, who was a real person um, that we don't know much about, but who was a poet who may or may not have been related to Henry, Eleanor's husband, and who may or may not have been the prioress of an abbey, uh, I think in France, of France, right? It's in the name, right? Marie de France. Anyway, so when the book opens, she's 17. She's living in the court with Eleanor, who she is secretly in love with. And Eleanor sends her away to be the prioress of an abbey that is on the, ver- the verge of starvation and also is in, like experiencing an outbreak of some kind of plague. So they're all dying. And the problem with Marie is that she is very like tall and ungainly and unattractive. She's way too independent. And there's no way Eleanor is going to be able to find her husband. So she's like to solve this problem, she sends her off. Marie is devastated. She shows up at this nunnery, like, used to living a life of luxury. But again, everybody here is starving. There's no money. She's never going to see a man, like, ever again, which it turns out to be fine. Um, and, you know, there's this plague to deal with. And she's suddenly in charge of it. And she's 17. Like, what? <laughs> Just by virtue of being related to the royal family, she now has all of this power over this very small world. And then the rest of the book, which is actually pretty short, it's about 250 pages, is just her life. Like, you're with her from the time she's 17 to her death in her 70s or 80s. And she spends her entire life making this abbey into this huge financial success and then isolating it from the rest of the world. Like she builds a labyrinth outside the abbey so men can't find it. Like can't not even, not just like can't come unannounced, but like literally cannot find where these women live. And she brings in women who, you know, need help, who are being thrown out by their families. And along the way, she has her own kind of theological questions that she's working out. But really, you can tell, in my opinion, that this was written during the Trump era, because this is entirely a book about like, what would happen (laughs) if horrible people took over a country and women just stopped? Like, what if we just didn't? What if we just removed ourselves and moved to an island and never spoke to men ever again? What would that be like? Like, you can tell that that's a like, it's a rage filled question, very much related to the modern day, even though it's based in a, you know, the medieval ages, which I think for somebody who really loves the classics and is trying to find a footing in modern literature, that's a great place to start a really ancient look at a really modern question. So that's Matrix by Lauren Groff. I have to read that. It's on my list. Oh, it's so good. 
Oh, so good. <laughs> Sounds great. Um, okay, so I picked Mama Day by Gloria Naylor, which is one of my favorite contemporary classics. And it also has some Shakespearean touch points. It's got some Tempest in it, more or less. So I think that will be nice for your uh, daughter who who loves. Also, it's I, I mean, I think, again, it's very in line with like especially like Toni Morrison, James Baldwin. Um, Gloria Naylor is a black writer who is just, I think, pretty, you know, seminal, even though her books are not as read today as they have been. And it's the story of a family. It is set in, well, the the daughter of this like, very female-focused family lives in the city and is like, you know, got a job and like trying to move up in the ranks and also maybe find a husband. Like she's doing her thing, living her life. She doesn't really intend to go home, which is a very small sort of island off the coast of, I want to say, like one of the Carolinas that is sort of independent. It was owned by a white slave owner who fell in love problematic consent issues with mm. uh, one of his enslaved persons. And she, at his deathbed, wrangled control of the island from him for her and her descendants. So they have lived there ever since, like doing their own thing. And there's some like folk magic and there's a lot of like generational family stuff going on. There are a lot of interesting tensions between like you know, when you come from somewhere that has such a very specific way of life and vibe, and then you're like, you're like, no, but I want to see the rest of the world. And then you get to the rest of your world and you're like, okay, well, I guess this is better, question mark. And then you go back and you bring somebody with you who has no context for any of that. Like, what is that like? Like, I think that's a very relatable experience for a lot of us who have left where we came from and find ourselves, like, with mixed feelings about going back. And then also you bring this, you know, like I said, this folk magic into it. And there's these just huge questions about, like, what does it mean to have a good life? What does it mean to try to, like, move on? What does it mean to be in love? Like, what does it mean to be a part of a family? There's just amazing. Oh, so juicy. Like, and the characters, I love the characters. And the writing is really interesting. Like, I think there's, I think this is definitely a book that your daughter will feel like she can sink into and, like, get in her teeth in the way that you feel a lot of about the classics. Like, that's how I feel about a lot of the classics. Like, I want to, like, sink my teeth into them and, like, really chew on it for a while in my brain. And that's what I did with this book. And it's it's just so good. It's just so good. So, again, that is Mama Day by Gloria Naylor. All right. Our next question is also a book club question. Uh, Sarah says, I'm part of a YA for adults book club at my local indie bookstore, Woozles. It's a great name for a bookstore, side note. Uh, I've written in before, gotten great suggestions for indigenous reads. We ended up reading Son of a Trickster and had a wonderful discussion around it. This time I'm looking for YA science fiction, particularly something that involves space travel and aliens. And Sarah has linked to what they've already read. Amanda, what did you pick? Okay, I got the space travel. I don't think I really got the aliens, depending on your definition of aliens. I don't know. Okay, so I picked Empress of a Thousand Skies by Rhoda Beleza, which is the first book in the Empress of a Thousand Skies series. And this is about a woman named Rhi, or well, a girl named Rhi, who has spent her life being raised to be the heir of a dynasty. It's called the Collusion Dynasty. She's the only surviving heir. Her family was murdered in like a political you know, assassination uh, many years ago. And she 
has really been raised, you know, with this idea that once you're coronated, once you come of age, you're going to be coronated, and then you're going to claim the throne and then like kill all of these people who murdered your family. Like that is your, that's what you're going to do. You're welcome. Um, and then the other character's name is Ali, and he is what's known as a Raiden. Like it's the name of his people. And he was a war refugee, but he is now really super famous as like a reality TV star. And their paths cross on a ship during her, during Ree's assassination attempt. Like somebody comes, tries to kill her. She barely escapes with her life. He helps her get off of the ship without dying. And then because he's the one who um, leaves and his people are darker skinned, there's a lot of prejudice against him, even though he's super famous. He's presumed to be, she's presumed to be dead, and he is presumed to be the murderer. And that is like very purposefully put out into the world by the people who were plotting to kill her in the first place. And so she's on the run, Re, who is supposed to be, you know, like this time next week, I was supposed to be an empress. Alas, I am now a fugitive with this dude who I don't know, who now everybody thinks has killed me. And they have to go into hiding to figure out who, you know, instituted this plot because it was somebody quite close to the throne who she knew. She's got to get over that. And then also they have to clear Allie's name. And so the assassination attempt turns out to be just like a one part of this huge, big, sinister intergalactic plot. But there's a lot of there's a lot of space travel. There's a lot of political machinations. I saw some people call it Game of Thrones in space, which I don't think is right because these mm. are kids. Mm. <laughs> and it's also like not rapey. And despite mm. the the death of her family, it's not super violent on the page. But in that, like, there's a lot of politics. There are a lot of side characters. There's a lot of people you can't trust. Also, that it's in space. That part is right. So maybe if it was just like one of the kids <laughs> from the from the Stark family, um, only them, and all still less raping and less blood. Yeah, but I think that this would be a great. You know, if you're looking for a science fiction way, a way to ease in to science fiction, um, I think this is a good starting place. And there's a romantic element, but it's not like the main thing. Like you're not here to watch people kiss. That's not what's happening. So that's Empress of a Thousand Skies by Rhoda Beleza. I think that like some people. And when I say some people, I mean people who write marketing copy, like <laughs> apparently can't think of a book that has political shenanigans and speculative fiction that's not Game of that's Thrones. That's not Game of Thrones, it's right. Like, it's so silly. As if Game of Thrones was the first one to do it anyway. Exactly. Like, and, or as if that's the, like the only thing that happens in Game of Thrones. Right. Like, there's so much more going on. Man. Anyway. Okay. Sorry. Side rant about market <laughs> copy. I also have space travel, but not really aliens for you. Sorry. Uh, I picked A Spark of White Fire by Sangu Mandana, which is the first in a completed trilogy. Side note, you can read the whole thing. I, I love this trilogy. It's the Celestial Trilogy. It is so good. It's so satisfying. It's based on the Hindu epic, the Mahabharata, and it is about uh, also a young woman in exile. She is an exiled princess because of a prophecy. She's grown up in, like, relative obscurity on this other planet in the court of this king, and she's made very close friends with his son, and she's been trained as a warrior by this, like, famous dude, and she is very much wanting to, like, prove that she deserves to go home and be reunited with a family that she has never known. And the king of the planet that she's on has also created this, like, sentient, unbeatable spaceship. And for whatever reason, 
in his head. This seems like a good idea. He's holding a competition and he's going to give the unbeatable sentient spaceship to whoever wins the competition. So she enters the competition and she's like, I'm going to win. I'm going to like bring this, you know, amazing living weapon home to my family because there is also this, you know, political shenanigans abound. And she's like, and that's going to mean that we're going to be triumphant over our enemies and everything will be great. Obviously, that is not what happens. Uh, It all gets very complicated and she ends up not knowing who to trust and the gods are involved in like imitating people and giving special gifts to some people but not to others. And there's all kinds of layers of secrets and betrayals. And there's so much intergalactic space travel stuff. And it is so satisfying because Esme is so angry And she's learning over the course of these books, like, what to do with that anger. And I don't remember the last time, particularly in YA, but in general, that I saw a series as thoughtfully handle that question of, like, what do you do with righteous anger without, like, causing harm to yourselves and others, which Esme absolutely does along the way. But, like, how do you grow as you acknowledge that feeling. It's not about not having a feeling. It's about what to do with it. But on this like intergalactic, you know, space traveling, political shenanigans, gods are involved scale. So I just think there's so much going on here. There's lots of great characters to talk about. There's lots of action. It's very readable. And there's tons of points for book club discussion. So again, that's A Spark of White Fire by Sangu Mandana. Okay, and now it's time for another sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. 
For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. All right. Our next question is from Christy. Uh, Another book club question. Accidental (laughs) book club vibes. I did not do this on purpose. That's fine. So Christy says, I'm a member of a book club filled with wonderful women. Each host picks the book we read for that month. So far, it's been your standard selection of chick lit and literary fiction. These books are not my cup of tea, but I so love the gathering and discussion that comes with the club. It's my turn to pick a book in January, and I would love to pick something more in my wheelhouse. I love science fiction and fantasy and read broadly in these categories, but I also enjoy a good thriller or mystery. Can you recommend a book for my chick-lit loving group that will broaden their horizons and please me as well? Okay. Why, yes. Yes, we can. So (laughs) I picked The Midnight Library by Matt Haig, which comes with a trigger warning for suicide. This book is a fantasy novel, but it is also 1000% airport fodder like bought it in an airport candy cover chiclet like i don't i don't think we have a functioning definition of chiclet and that term makes me feel kind of weird in my bones yeah but in as much as all chiclet is about what like a woman exploring relationships and living in her apartment and trying to find happiness that seems to be the through line that is very much what this is with a fantasy speculative fiction element so i think this will make everybody happy it's about a woman named nora who when the book opens her life is a disaster she's like (laughs) left her fiance she abandoned a career in music that was really going places she's been fired from her job at i think a bookstore no a record store yeah her cat has just died her cat was just hit by a car and like her family doesn't speak to her she's just like i got nothing else you know and so like page one she attempts suicide she's like done she wakes up in a library and is like you know confused about what's going on and then the librarian comes to her and is like this is a these are you know all of these books are versions of your life that you didn't live because of the choices that you made so you can read some if you want and see like what your life could have been or you could not or what do you want to do you know uh and nora is like i'm curious hashtag so she starts pulling books off the shelves and each chapter is another book in her life that she didn't live where she follows these threads of her choices to see what would have turned out differently and if she really is all of these things that she thinks about herself you know like she was a she was a star swimmer and could have gone to the olympics what would her life have been like if she had actually done that instead of quitting to like take care of her mom turns out it wouldn't have been great what if she had married the man that she had suspicions about turned out wouldn't have been great so like maybe you are smart and wise and have made good choices along the way and are having a hard time but that doesn't mean that you as a person are worthless so there's a lot to talk about there's a lot of that kind of I'm using air quotes here, women's fiction, personal growth journey thing going on with this kind of a little bit creepy library that exists in between your consciousness and not and maybe doesn't maybe she's dreaming it. Maybe it's just induced by the meds she took. Maybe it's a real thing. You know, it's just got that kind of Christmas Carol fantasy element of like ghosts (laughs) of Christmas past, which is super chill and like a very easy way to get into a, a fantasy novel without it being like, and now have a dragon, you know, <laughs> or something like that. So that's The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. So I picked The Inheritance of Orchidea Divina by Zoraida Cordova, which am I going to use up my picks of this book this year? <laughs> Absolutely. The answer is yes. There's no doubt in my mind that that will happen. I think this is number two. It's so good. And I feel like it does work for this question. It is magical realism. It takes place both in, like, the contemporary world and then maybe, like, uh, 50, 60 years in the past, question mark. I'm not bad. I'm not good at generational time calculations. (laughs) 
Anyway, so this is about the Montoyas. It is a family, multiple generations of family novel, which again, like I feel like is very much in the women's fiction chiclet oeuvre, trope mm-hmm. library, whatever you want to call it. And the Montoyas live Well, the family home is in this very small town called the Four Rivers, and there's some, like, strange things about the Montoyas. Like, for example, the house just sort of appeared overnight, and when the very nice, chill local sheriff came to be like, there's a house here that wasn't here, Orchidia, who is the matriarch of the family, was like, well, here's my papers. Like, this is fine, right? And he's like, sure, this is fine. And so all of the family's oddnesses are just sort of, like, ignored Mm -hmm. by other people. And they don't talk about it in the family. Like, these things happen, strange things happen, but nobody ever talks about it. Which, like, classic family dynamic, can we just Mm -hmm. say. So you actually start with a third generation who are, like, living their various lives, like, out in the city. Like, yeah, my family's weird. I don't want to talk about it. Like, I'm going to be an artist or I'm going to be, like, a stockbroker or whatever. Um, And they get letters from the matriarch, Orchidia, who's like, I'm dying. Come home to receive your inheritance. I want to give it to you while I'm still here. And they get back to the house and she is turning into a tree. Surprise. And their inheritance is not what they thought it was going to be. And tragedies start to happen to various members of the family that are not accidental and that are also strange in various ways. And so these three like people from the third generation have to figure out like what is their grandmother Orchidia's story? Where did she come from? Why is there somebody wreaking havoc on their family? Like, What do they do about it? And they end up going back to Ecuador, which is the place where Orchidia originally came from. And, like, there's also a circus and, like, all Mm -hmm. kinds of things happen. And it's extremely readable. It is so good on character. And it's so complicated. Like, all of the feelings are so complicated. But there's enough action to to balance it out. And I feel like magical realism is a nice place to be for people who maybe don't want full-on fantasy. So, like, you're grounded in the real world, but then there's an extra layer of things that are happening that, like, maybe are explained and maybe aren't, and you just kind of got to go with it. That can be a stretch for some folks, but I feel like this is a very compelling stretch in that way. And again, so many great characters, so many great family dynamics. So that is The Inheritance of Orchidia Divina by Zoraida Cordova. And on to our next question in a different vein from Deb. Mm. I'm looking for nonfiction, preferably references on the history of the United States and religion, specifically Christianity and evangelicalism. I'm looking for unbiased and definitely secular picks, events, people that led up to the evangelical movement of the 19th century, etc. This is not my specialty. (laughs) Amanda, why don't you go first and then I'll talk about the pick that I stole from you. Okay. (laughs) So what you're looking for is The Evangelicals by Frances Fitzgerald. This was a Pulitzer Prize winner. Frances Fitzgerald is a journalist and historian, mostly about American religious history. Uh, The subtitle is The Struggle to Shape America. This one in... Uh, 2017, so it's pretty recent, and it starts with the Puritans and goes all the way up to the election of 2016. So you're getting a real chonky chonk (laughs) of the history of evangelicalism. So we're talking about, like, 19th century the like formation of the evangelical movement, what that was born out of, how it split during the Civil War along the North-South axis, and then after World War II, 
we get Billy Graham. And then after that, you get Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson. And she's talking about how all of those things, especially those really in the 20th century, those really famous men pushed the evangelical movement out of like a reaction to the established religions of the time and into a bedfellow with an established political party. And she does go all the way up to 2016. She talks a little bit about the modern state of evangelicalism, which includes some younger members of the church who are trying to divorce evangelicalism from the GOP and failing entirely, completely wholesale. Sorry, kids, you know, Um, (laughs) but but why is that? You know, it's a it's a question that I left the evangelical church many years ago, uh, when I got divorced, the final nail in the coffin was its was the Trump election. So all of the the history and the the ways that she's trying to get into that psyche were really fascinating to me. It's a very readable history, definitely secular. She's not here to defend any particular person in the movement. But it was helpful to me to look back and know that, you know, this wasn't a movement born out of ties to the Republican Party. It was born before the Republican Party existed. So, you know, intention is an impact, but it's a big it's a big picture look. So that's the Evangelicals by Francis Fitzgerald. Yeah. So Amanda was kind enough to help me find a pick for you. And that pick is Blessed by Kate Bowler. And this is super interesting, too, because this is a dive specifically into the prosperity gospel part Mm. of American evangelicalism. So Bowler is tracing, like, how did we get to this place where contemporary Christianity in certain sectors is like all about measuring your spiritual progress by like what you have and how mm-hmm. healthy you are and like hashtag blessed, et cetera. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right? We, yep. Like we are familiar with this concept. Yep, yep, yep. So she goes back to some of the same things that uh, are touched on in uh, the pick Amanda just talked about where like we're looking at the history, right? Okay, so like these touring, you know, preachers and like Pentecostal healers and, you know, the early 20th century stuff. And then goes contemporary to, you know, Norman Vincent Peale. And then we get to, you know, T.D. Jakes and Joel Osteen and all of these other people that are alive and working today. And how did we get here? Like, how did we get to like these mega churches and these, you know, TV shows and podcasts and radio things that are all about talking about health and wealth as a spiritual achievement. And that is super interesting. So that might also like if you want to deep dive into that particular aspect of evangelical Christianity, this is the book for it. So again, that's Blessed by Kate Bowler. All right. Our last question is from Megan, who says, I would like a recommendation for my little brother. He's 35, but will always be my little brother. He's a progressive single dad, but finally admitted to me his secret shame. He reads spy books written almost exclusively by conservative old white men. So many stereotypes and no intelligent women. He said he was open to reading spy books written by women and or by POC. Please help me to wake up his reading life. Okay, what a great question. I kind of love your brother. Like, I love his awareness in this situation. Like, I like what I like, but I know it's bad. Help me. (laughs) So I picked American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson for you, which takes place in the 80s, 1986, like Cold War. And Marie is our main character. She works for the FBI. She's an intelligence officer, but she's a black woman. It's 1986. It's the FBI, right? So like her career is not going anywhere. She's doing a lot of paperwork. She's being denied 
basically every high profile case that would be interesting to her. But then she is given the job to join a task force that is designed to undermine Thomas Sankara, who is a revolutionary communist president of Burkina Faso. The U.S. is very interested, as we were in a lot of countries in the 80s, in overthrowing this communist government, even if it was elected properly, et cetera, et cetera. So her job is to go there and bring about his downfall, essentially. Wrinkle is that she quite likes him. She's like very inspired by his politics. He very obviously cares about his country and is working really hard to bring, um, you know, prosperity and um, success to his administration. He cares about these people. Um, She might love him a little bit. Oops. And also another wrinkle is that her sister died mysteriously recently and she's still grieving that and kind of looking into that. So you're with her for, I think, about a year where she seduces Thomas and brings helps to bring about a coup that has you know repercussions for his administration and the whole time like the real question here is are are you a good american like are you a good american also person if this is the thing that you're doing like you're doing this to serve your country but if you believe in what this other man is what this person is doing in this other country like does it does the fact that you're doing something quote unquote patriotic override that you're also doing something real shady and probably ultimately harmful to the people who live in this country it's so it takes that kind of spy trope and makes you look at it a little bit. Like, what is it about spy novels that we like to read that we like so much? I think it's mostly competency, like competence porn. We all like watching somebody who's really good at something we have no chance of being good at do that thing, right? Like, I would be a terrible spy. I can't fix my face. I speak one language. Like, it would be bad. Um, But uh, so there's a lot of that. She's a really, really good spy. But then the question, it's not just, it doesn't stop there. It's like, look at this competent person. But is this really good? Like, is it good? Is being good at something a good enough reason to do it? No. No, it's not. So anyway, it's, it's, it's super thoughtful. I think it would, you know, be really right up your brother's alley. So that's American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson. That's the book I would have picked if Amanda hadn't already taken it. But that's fine Sorry. because it <laughs> enables me to recommend Who is Vera Kelly by Rosalie Connect, which does come, side note, with content warnings for child abuse, homophobia, and anti-Semitism. So this is also Cold War. Whoops, we both picked Cold War books. And it takes place in a couple of different uh, places, largely New York City and then Buenos Aires. Vera grew up in 1950s Maryland, did not fit in, disinterested mother, like didn't get a lot of home support. She ends up in juvie and then a boarding school and is working actually the night shift at a radio station and ends up finding out that she's very good at like circuits and electronics and radio-y stuff. Hmm. And she ends up getting recruited by the CIA and is in Argentina in the 1960s, right before the U.S. believes there will be a Russian-backed coup. And so, like, she she likes being a spy. She likes eavesdropping on the politicians and whatnot. But also, like, she is in a very vulnerable position. So, like, what does she do if and when this coup actually happens? What is, like, what does she want her life to be like? What is it like to be in Buenos Aires uh, during the Cold War? Like, all of these things. And it is very, like, it flips around a bit in time and space. So you're very much getting both her present day spy work and then going back into her history to sort of see how she got there. And then there's all of these, you know, political spy stuff 
So I think it's very much a book uh, your brother will enjoy, but is also like, you know, a slightly different kind of spy story than he might be used to, which is the whole point of this exercise. So again, that's Who is Vera Kelly by Rosalie Connect. And that's our show. Thanks so much to our audio editor, Jen Zink, who always cleans up all of the sneezes (laughs) my allergies continue to make me have. Thanks to you all for listening. We super appreciate that, especially 300 episodes, 300 plus episodes in. If you would like more book recommendations, you can find those at bookriot.com. You can find our other podcasts, including the new one at Adaptation Nation, at bookriot.com slash listen. And if you would be so kind as to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, we super appreciate that. Helps other folks to find the show. Thanks go out to our sponsors for making the show possible. And in between shows, you can find us on social media. Amanda, where are you? I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And I am on Twitter and Tumblr as Jen IRL, J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.